This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook. And I'm Karsten Knox. And this is the podcast where we take a look at films that are new in theaters and tangentially connect them to other films from the past that you may not have seen and might want to check out. Today, we are going to look at, in the wake of the new film Arrival, we're going to look at alien invasions. Watch the skies! sci-fi aficionados have a new film to ponder in theaters these days. It's the new film from Canadian director Denis Villeneuve with a high-powered Hollywood cast. It's called Arrival, and it's a realistic and occasionally kind of trippy look at what happens when aliens come from outer space to unite the planet and uh, bring humanity all together. And uh, it's, it's a visual treat. It's got a great cast. Amy Adams is fantastic as the linguistic expert brought in to kind of translate the alien language, which is more of a visual language than a spoken one. And uh, there's, there's some fantastic kind of understated and very cleverly thought out visuals as well, and, and a real emotional core to it as well. So um, I, I really enjoyed the film. What did you think about it, Karsten? Yeah, uh, I did. I, it's funny you used the word realistic in relation to a alien <laughs> invasion enough. movie, uh, but it does feel that way, doesn't it? It has a it has a sense of realism uh, that I think is much to its credit, and I think also to the director's credit. Uh, Denis Villeneuve is is a uh, you know Quebecer in Hollywood who's really crafting a great body of work down there, uh, and uh, I, I really like what he does in a general way. His last film, Sicario, was one of my favorites from twenty. 15. Yeah, same here. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I don't. It's funny. This is a movie where I would generally immediately launch into a discussion of its plot. But I, having seen its trailer a few times and watching the film, I realized that uh, it really is one of those films. I think really benefits from not having seen too much or knowing too much about what goes on in a very basic way, outline way. Yes, Amy Adams plays Louise, who is a. Um, a, a linguist, a, an academic, and uh, we meet her early on. In fact, there's sort of a, a preamble about sort of an element of her life, and it kind of gives her a little bit of a character detail, a, a melancholy character detail. But before long, she is being recruited by Forrest Whitaker's Colonel Weber to try to figure out what these aliens are doing and what their language is about, and are, do they mean us harm? And she's put a lot of pressure is put on her and on Jeremy Renner, who is her her partner in uh, in science, uh, he he's part of this group trying to figure out what's going on with these aliens. They've they've arrived. They've shown up in a ship that sort of floats above the land. Uh, that there's a dozen of them across the planet. To me, it looks like kind of a an inverted Brazil nut. Um, <laughs> yeah, it looks like yeah, cause, because it's standing on end, so it looks like a big exclamation point. Yes, yes. Uh, I've heard a lot of uh, descriptions of what this this ship looks like, uh, and and uh, you know it's um. And it's, there's a dreamlike quality to the film. I think it's because of the way that Villeneuve uses his camera work. He he tends to focus, has a shallow focus. So he's okay with characters going in and out of focus, you know, walking into the sort of camera focus and walking away. And you, you get this, and the way it's edited as well has this tendency to create this feeling of, of this is a dreamlike quality to the, to the film. And uh, the use of the score as well, I think, I think brings that, emphasizes some of that. Um, 
And yeah, and I, I would say that that uh, although this feels very contemporary, a lot of its themes, I think, in terms of communication, um, but it also has, has themes of of memory and identity and choice in life. There are some pretty heavy, large themes. Uh, it also it doesn't veer too far from the template carved out by, you know, going back to the day the Earth stood still, Close Encounters of a Third Kind, or even Contact, which is a film, uh, Robert Zemeckis' film, which I don't think gets a lot of love in a general way, but I really, I every time I see Contact, I really love it. And I think, uh, I think, I think that Arrival owes quite a bit to, to that film. Yeah, I didn't love Contact. <laughs> okay, fair I, enough. You know, I haven't watched it since it came out. I just remember being really frustrated by it. And oh no, I've seen know. it a, a half a dozen times since it's come out, and I every time I watch it, I'm just amazed at its. I mean, it's a little hokey and a little bit um, saccharine, but boy, does it take you away. And I anyway, so I feel like this film uh, is is a little more art house, but it has perhaps because there the lead is female and she has this kind of. Uh, this kind of sadness to her, which I think that Amy Adams has a little bit of that uh, Jodie Foster quality. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I'd, I'd, yeah, I just felt Contact was kind of whacking me over the head with its concept. And then the, the, the ending, I just, uh, that's it. I hate this movie. Um, <laughs> okay, I, 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 I can go back to it at some point, but but uh, I don't want to... Look at this. We're belabor. finding all these places to disagree. I'm, I'm enjoying this. Well, and then, you know, I, I just generally have this anti-Zemeckis thing ever since Forrest Gump. So. Well, that is also fair. Forrest um, Gump is, is really frustrating to me, too. And uh, That's I'm, a whole other show. Yeah, that's a whole other show. But I, <laughs> I uh, the Films We Hate show. But um, I am looking... He, he does, does have a new film opening real soon. Um, his uh, his spy movie with uh, with Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard. So I'm oh, the War, World War II movie. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, I've, sure. I have high hopes for that. <laughs> that he'll get back on the horse. Yeah, guarded I, high hopes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess his... Anyway, I don't want to get off on a Zemeckis rant, but he's shown some promise in his last couple of films that he's pulled out of that weird Polar Express nosedive. Yes, uh, that's that, true. That he went into. But um, but as, as far as Arrival goes, it's... it's I, I like the fact that it does have these subtle homages to to other films, uh, other science fiction of the past. I think, uh, I think Villeneuve has a love for the genre somewhere within him to, to make nods to the day the earth stood still, for example. I think there's a lot of that in there. Mm-hmm, um, definitely. Solaris, um, you know, just to kind of give you the idea of the range. Of yeah, both this, the, tar- the kind of Tarkovsky and the... Uh, and the Soderbergh. And the Soderbergh, yeah. 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 And, uh, and uh, you know, these these, uh, these are adult characters, you know, who, who think in logical kind of ways. That it's, I mean, th- I guess that's where my realistic comment came from because it, it tries to, like, how would we deal with this... The, this event, if it happened, and and of course, you know, the the aliens are appropriately otherworldly. Uh, you know, it's, it's I know that they they try not to show too much of them in the in the trailers, and I don't want to talk about them too much. But they're you know, it's, it's an interesting concept. Hept, for, heptapods, for sure. heptapods, is, is yes. where they're they're dubbed in the film. Uh, yeah. Elongated elephants is what they kind of look like. But um, but but I you know I, I like that idea that that there's that conflict between politics and and science and then just pure military muscle yes. that all kind of clash on the ground, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, the, the people can just like, dude, these are aliens. We need to think about this in a different kind of way. And, uh, you know, but the same thing happens in those movies of the fifties, uh, in uh, day the earth stood still or versus the flying saucers and so on. Um, you know, uh, where, where they actually try to have some of the give and take before, the, before things go south. Um, as opposed to War of the Worlds, where they're just jerks from the get-go and just start <laughs> blasting everyone the second they land. Um, you know, th- that it's like, well, is that how things would go? Or, you know, and, and, and 
later on, you know, in more recent years, Mars Attacks does it in a satirical way. But 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 here we you know get a deeper philosophy uh, about it and um, and uh, you know some some real human uh, responses to to this. You know, you know. Finally, that that last barrier has been broken. Yeah, no, I, I I agree, and I like that. I like. I mean, I'm a big fan of science fiction of ideas. Like this isn't Independence Day, uh, which is an alien invasion movie. Probably the biggest one of the last, you know. Uh, 30 years, and of course its sequel arrived this past summer, a pretty terrible movie. Uh, <laughs> I was never really that big a fan of Independence Day because I feel like it's really just a roller coaster ride, and, and I'm more of a fan of, of a movie that'll make me think a little bit about, about the ideas that are therein, uh, and I think Arrival is very much in that category. In fact, uh, aside from those other films I mentioned, it, uh, its themes of choice and identity and uh, uh, that that come up later on in the story share I think some some themes with uh, the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. If you knew that something was going to happen in the future, what sort of decisions would you make, uh, and would you, would that change the decisions you make? Uh, and I think that's uh, that's an interesting kind, and that's that's where it it shares those and that's all i'm going to say about sure, that fair enough. Yeah, don't anymore get away. too deep into that um, but but yeah yeah and i mean that's i think the power of science fiction and the power of thoughtful idea-based science fiction is that it is allegorical and it's and it can represent other things and it can get into heavy stuff that we generally don't get into in a day-to-day basis i uh you know uh district nine is analogous to apartheid invasion yeah. of the body snatchers is about mccarthyism uh and i love that about these films yeah, it's, uh, you know, as someone who grew up reading Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and, you know, even Heinlein and so on, and, and, you know, and then we get Independence Day is like the the bastion of <laughs> of science fiction at the movies. You're kind of like, uh, you know, or, you know, or reading Ray Bradbury and, and you just wish that someone would latch on to some of those, you know, more high-minded concepts. And so finally we have a film that does and, and, uh, and kind of, but does it with an original story you know, that loosely connects to, to things we've seen before, but also puts its own spin on it. And it's nice to see that you also get to see the effect, the after effect this has on people, because usually, usually these films kind of end with a big, you know, rousing victory or for something, or, you know, it just kind of cuts the black after the aliens are driven away or, or what have you. And then you don't actually get to see the, you know, the aftermath of, of, you know, well now what happens to yeah. these people and, you know, the, they're not always so invested in the characters, you know. Like, 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 I, I feel that on Independence Day, that the first one, that you know, that Roland Emmerich probably saw Earth versus the Flying Saucers as a kid and thought, remember those scenes where they knocked over the Washington Monument and they hit the Capitol building? I was like, let's just do that in like surround sound and CGI Technicolor and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, and <laughs> what else are you going to do with it? And you know, oh, and you know, we'll take that War of the Worlds virus uh, plot twist and just turn it into a computer virus, which was sort of clever, I guess. But but uh, you know, it was lost in a sea of you know hoo ha. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, for sure. I, I I find it interesting how often we get alien invasion movies, even when they are like like in this current superhero glut uh, genre that we're getting. We're getting three or four superhero movies a year now. Uh, Man of Steel has been. You know, Superman didn't feel like an alien invasion movie, but Man of Steel does. Yeah. Uh, certainly, 
Batman versus Superman felt like an alien invasion movie to some degree. And, uh, the Avengers, another big alien invasion movie, because there are forces, extraterrestrial forces bearing down upon the Earth. In the first one, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and I just think even, what, Cloverfield had a sequel this this year that was, uh, that, and that original Clo- Cloverfield from, I guess, 2000 and I want to say eight, uh, was was an alien invasion movie. It's it, it's a it just keeps on giving this this genre. Uh, but you you went back and watched a, a few of the classics of the genre. I, I don't know if you want to we want to get into that. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about those those early ones? Yeah, or, or we'll just save it for the next segment. All right, fair enough. It's the magic of podcasting. And we're back, and the aliens are still invading. Yes, we uh, as we mentioned at the end of the last segment, uh, I. I in the wake of Arrival, I went back and watched, rewatched a bunch of uh, classic alien invasion films, and it's you know th- there are some from every decade. The, the '60s they seem to back off from the concept a little bit, um, and then the, the decade ended with uh, 2001 and a Space Odyssey, which is a, certainly a more cerebral approach to man's first contact with uh, alien intelligence, and and one that uh, you know that had a big impact on me. But but you know it's, it's such a far cry from what happened, even just a decade before. It's, it's amazing that the progress that was made in in that uh, in in the science fiction genre um, from you know going from Earth versus the Flying Saucers to 2001: A Space Odyssey, Space Odyssey in such a short uh, period of time. But um, I guess the thing that penetrates my consciousness most vividly would be War of the Worlds. Sure, the, the yeah. um, the uh, originally uh, an H.G. Wells novel in the late 1800s, um, he seemed to even even before the First World War, he he sort of foresaw the mechanization of war and 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 used Martian invaders as a way to kind of symbolize that. I, mean, I think in in some of his later sort of non-fictional writing, he actually foretells uh, of you know global conflicts as 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 um, industry catches up to warfare and, and war basically becomes industrialized essentially in, in, in some of his um, essays and so on. And so uh, it's all there in, in black and white in, in, in uh, war of the worlds, uh, which, you know, is kind of almost ground zero for modern science fiction. And, uh, you know, I read the book as a kid. Uh, I certainly listened to the Orson Welles radio play adaptation of it. And, uh, and then of course, eventually got around to watching the, uh, Technicolor Paramount, uh, George Powell presentation where, uh, I was very disappointed that it did not have tripods. It, it the, 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 the tripods were replaced by these kind of flying, floating, not flying saucers, but floating saucers with kind of invisible legs, um, but they're still like great looking machines. And, uh, that 1953, I think. That yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's early fifties. And, uh, you know, they, st- the, the alien, the Martians just invade from the get go. They, they, their planet has been depleted of, of, uh, resources and that's why they're coming here. Um, but you know, this is a story that kept resonating over the decades. Uh, certainly, uh, even in the silent era, there were plan. Paramount was going to make a silent film version of it. Cecil B. DeMille was going to produce it. And uh, there, were, I, I even have like a, a Paramount book that has an ad for the upcoming uh, mega production of War of the Worlds from like 1927. Wow. Which didn't happen, and, but they kept the rights obviously to make it, you know, 30 years later. But, um, and it was going to use stop motion because the Lost World, uh, the silent version of the Lost World with the stop motion dinosaurs uh, was such a hit that uh, they were going to take that and apply it to uh, the tripods and Martians and, and all that kind of thing. Um, but it didn't come to pass for whatever reason, probably the expense of doing it. And, uh, I think at the Academy, there are some production sketches and that kind of thing. And that's about as far as they got. Um, 
but uh, you know, and then you know, Orson Welles, uh, you know, had the misfortune of doing his version as kind of a dramatized reality show in a way in the in the the late thirties um, on the radio on the radio. Yeah. But the problem with that was that there was a disclaimer at the start of the film. It was saying, you know, it's like you know, the following is a presentation of the. H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds as presented by the Mercury Theater players. But the problem is, is that people tuned in partway through. Because, oh, the, the, the radio show. You mean. Yeah, the yeah, radio yeah. show, because, because of course, they'd, um, uh, they've been listening to uh, ventriloquism on the radio with uh, Charlie Mc- Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Uh, when that show was over, they tuned over, you know, many people tuned over to CBS and got all this stuff about an alien invasion and, of course, you know, a certain percentage of listeners were very panic-stricken about the, this very realistic portrayal of uh, of Martians uh, invading the invading the Earth and and um, destroying Manhattan. So. Yeah, and, and the film the film uh, is is a classic, certainly. Uh, yeah, it's it, funny it, that it took so long to get made, considering you know, what a big sensation the radio play caused. You know, the, you, you, the headlines across the country. Now, more recently, there have been essays saying that that whole thing was blown out of proportion, right. the reaction, because it was only a, a certain percentage of the listening audience that actually got taken in by it. But but it's a great story. <laughs> well, I, f- I feel like the war, the World War II, kind of interrupted a lot of that those kinds of films. The 40s w- wasn't an era of science fiction necessarily. It feels like it really came into its own in the 50s and, and maybe in the... You know the atomic age, and there were some elements of that which which fed into this oh, for sure. paranoia around alien invasions. Uh, and and but it, it felt like w- once you had a few hits. I mean, the day the Earth stood still was fifty one. Robert Wise's film. Mm. It's black and white, but uh, but it's also you know you can count it amongst War of the Worlds, maybe even more so in terms of its serious science fiction credentials uh and and you know and with a message for, of peace for humans peace or we will destroy you <laughs> yes <laughs> get your act together well certainly the atomic the combination of the atomic age and the rocket uh, space age uh those that two-pronged uh development you know that, that this this whole wave of new technologies which had not been really in people's minds you know a decade before um Certainly, you know, it's funny, you think War of the Worlds, the radio play was informed by what was happening in Europe. You know, the war was already going in Europe in 1938. Um, And uh, so that was kind of the allegory there, uh, you know, before the Americans got involved three years later. Uh, And then, but then we got the Cold War, you know, the, 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 the A-bomb, H-bomb race and, and the space race. And so that all kind of congeals into this us versus them approach to science fiction that comes out in films like, uh, well, certainly the fifties version of war of the worlds and earth versus the flying saucers and, and some of the Zed budget, uh, you know, nine from outer space and so on. The blob. I remember. Yeah. Of course they remade that in the eighties. I remember with, uh, with Kevin Dillon, Dillon, which which wasn't a bad remake in terms, as far as remakes of fifties, uh, cheesy sci-fi. It it has a good streak of humor running through it, which I think you kind of need when you're remaking the blob. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. But day of the earth stood still is, is interesting in that it is a pacifist movie. Um, you know, as opposed to some of the other ones where it's just like, ah, take him down. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you just want to see, Earthlings battling, um, you know, flying saucers, but but uh, the day of the Earth still is very thoughtful. It's uh, it's got a lot of humor in it. It's directed by Robert Wise, who would go on to make, um, you know, certainly The Sound of Music is probably the the first film people think of, but uh, uh, you know, and, and West Side Story. But but he also made some terrific and really gritty film noir, and uh, 
he, you know, he made some good war films, The Sand Pebbles with Steve McQueen. You know, he's a pretty gifted all-around director. Didn't he direct the first Star Trek feature yeah. film? Uh, well? Yes, he did. He directed Star Trek The Motion, Motion Picture. Picture. Yeah. A weird choice of a director for that. Well, um, I mean, he's got the sci-fi uh, but, credentials, but I, guess I suppose. The, I, guess, uh, I guess the Daviers should still uh, put him in good stead for, for directing directing that film, um, which is, uh, of course, a divisive film amongst Star yes. Trek fans. Uh but it's just it's just this, it's very you know it's kind of like a rival and that it actually tries to be fairly realistic about how the political entities of the time would react to a man from outer space showing up and telling them that uh you know mutual mutually assured destruction is just uh just a, a push of a button away and and uh you know he he freezes their you know he he doesn't attack them uh, you know he attacks their weapons initially yes when uh, they're surrounded by the army at the start but um you know that you know, at some point we're going to have to get our act together because we're going to have to collaborate down the road and we don't want to deal with your petty squabbles basically. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, so, and that was a pretty, uh, I think it was a pretty extreme message at the time. I think, I mean, there, there were certainly other artists, uh, people like George Bernard Shaw and so on who were delivering similar messages. Um, but I don't think it was a mainstream idea necessarily. Um, especially at the height of, uh, this kind of this cold war paranoia, you know, to, to, it's, kind of audacious to suggest that hey maybe we shouldn't be red baiting and and you know calling you know there's these sympathetic shots of of you know just russian civilians cowering in fear at the at, at what's happening and all that kind of thing so um i think it's a maybe even a little bit subversive for its time it probably doesn't seem so today but mm-hmm. you know if you were like a just a fired up uh you know red hating uh blue-blooded american and you're watching this film and to suggest that that we should try and get along with the commies, it would seem like a pretty extreme idea, especially in the face of uh, of all the propaganda, the, all the anti uh, all the anti communist propaganda that was just being shoved down your throat back in the day. Um, so I think, and I think that's why it stands up so well today that it does have that kind of very mannered, very logical approach to it, and um, you know, and and it's fairly even handed in its portrayal. Of, you know, Michael Rennie is just a you know, he doesn't talk in an awkwardly stilted, I am a spaceman kind of thing. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's, he just pitches it just right as, as the, you know, he's, he's obviously not, he doesn't know what the world series is or whatever, but, but, you know, he's, he's kind of been studying the planet long enough to know how to kind of blend in a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, that's appreciated because a lot of films kind of overblow the, the differences between aliens and, and humans, you know, if they're humanoid. Um, I didn't see the Keanu Reeves remake. I have seen it. It's really not something that I even feel like spending <laughs> even uh, 30 seconds of our podcast discussing. It, it's, it's funny because my copy of the film, uh, I picked up a cheap Blu-ray somewhere, and it, and it starts with like an eight-minute scene from the Keanu film, like early on when he's been captured. Or I don't know if he's been captured, but he goes into custody, custody and uh, they give him they try to give him a lie detector test, and it doesn't go so well for the, the guy doing the test. Um and it had, you know, I thought, okay, this could have worked, I guess. But, um, and I forgot that John Hamm is in it. So I'm kind of curious to see if he, like, plays the piggish, selfish Hugh Marlowe character from the, for the original film. Um, you know, I think there would have been potential for a remake. Uh, but, uh as you say, it goes horribly south. Yes, and, it does. It's not, yeah, it's I, a shame. I, I have seen it and I, yeah, I don't even, honestly, the, the fine details escape my brain right now, uh, but it's not, it's not something I would recommend. Whereas, for example, we actually had 
I, I think I considered talking about it on our remakes uh, podcast, but uh, but but the, the <laughs> shrugged war- and gave up. <laughs> yeah, no the 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 War of the Worlds was remade by Steven Spielberg in two thousand five. Now his version isn't. I don't think it's beloved particularly by fans of Spielberg, but uh, it does get to. It, he does manage to capture a certain fear and and he's, you know Spielberg, of course great with spectacle and with this kind of material, uh, having done Close Encounters of the Third Kind and, and a fair amount of genre pictures. Uh, I actually quite like uh, I like War of the Worlds, with the exception of the ongoing scene that takes place in a basement. It just feels like <laughs> it just feels like something that was clearly shot in a studio somewhere. It doesn't yes. that's where the feeling of realism, which I think Arrival gets does so well uh, is completely unfortunately left behind. But there is a there are a lot of elements of War of the Worlds that are good and uh, and uh, you know I, I I would say that that if you were going to do a, a double feature of the original George Powell and then the Spielberg, you wouldn't it wouldn't be a a, a bad idea. Well, that scene in the basement actually does occur in the Powell um, film. Well, Powell produced it, Byron Haskin directed, but but. Um and I think Byron Haskin also made Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which is an attempt to do a realistic look at an astronaut getting stranded on the red planet. Oddly enough, yeah, um, we watched that. I remember. For oh, that's one, right. Yeah, yes. for one of our uh, for our Lost in Space uh, <laughs> uh, podcast. Um, so he obviously had a feel for for the material. But um, I, I remember enjoying the Spielberg War of the Worlds, not loving it, um, kind of wishing that someone would just like set it in the time of the novel, but obviously making it contemporary is probably an easier sell um, to the backers. So that's what we got. Um, oddly enough, I think in the, in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which of course we had a terrible film of, uh, I think in the second installment of that comic, it actually was set in it a did, War of the Worlds yeah, type absolutely. of setting. And I thought, yeah. oh, maybe, you know, if, if the original movie hadn't been so bad, <laughs> that the, there was a chance we'd get a sequel that yeah, would actually it? follow that story. Yeah. But uh, that didn't happen. No, unfortunately. Not like, but Not likely to. Recently, of course, we had Penny Dreadful, which is kind very League of Extraordinary Gentleman-esque uh, for anyone who was yes, a fan that of that true. comic. And, and uh, yeah, I really like Penny Dreadful, but uh, it's, anyway, we're getting a little off topic. Yeah, that's but, true. But yes, but yes, I, I agree. It, the, the second volume of the Alan Moore comic, uh, Kevin O'Neill was really terrific and yeah, set very much as part of in that world of aliens arriving. Um, I, I guess the, the, the a contrast to uh, um, the day the earth stood still, which took this kind of forward thinking realist for the time, sort of semi-realistic look at, at an alien coming to earth and instructing us to mend our ways and, and, and uh, find peace and, not destroy the planet. Um, of course, then we just get those films like War of the Worlds and also uh, uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers with the special effects by Ray Harryhausen, where the Martians are just dicks. Or the, <laughs> the alien invaders are just, they're just dickwads who want to just come and wipe us out and, um, and take the planet for themselves. Uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers is interesting in that, of course, um, you know, the, the Earthlings are kind of dicks too. Like they, they just fight, you know, shoot first, ask questions later before they're even attacked. But then it turns out, oh, wait, no, the Martians are, or they're, I don't, they're not Martians, but the, you know, the aliens are, are, um, are out to get us, as, as it turns out. They, they all speak with the voice of Paul Fries, which I find kind of interesting once they decipher their language. Um, they all speak, Paul Fries is um, a character actor who does a lot of, did a lot of voiceover, often for characters he's not playing on screen. So if you're watching a film in the 50s and into the 60s, often if it's dubbed, 
or, or if they had to do some post-production sound uh, dubbing, um, you know, often they have the voice of Paul Freese with this kind of booming baritone kind of voice. It, it kind of comes, it sounds like a, a fake Orson Welles. He did a lot of trailers. You know, right, he, he sure. was like the original in a world kind of guy. Yeah. Because he, he sounded like Orson Welles. <laughs> like when you can't get Orson Welles to do it, get Paul Freese to come in and do his best Stentorian uh, narration. Um, and he also did the voice of Boris Badenoff on Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> so, ah, okay. Um, I think maybe we've talked about him before, but because um, he does turn up a lot in these weird little bit parts. And, and like I say, sometimes you just hear his voice um, show up. And in Earth versus the Flying Saucers, he's the voice of the aliens. And, the, and they're very, the aliens are very condescending. And, and uh, you know, the, at first they're hurt. Like, why did you shoot at us? Like, we just wanted to, to land. And, and then it turns out, oh, no, they do want to take over the planet. But it's, um, you know, so it had, you know, I think, and a lot of that gets translated over to Mars Attacks when Tim Burton does his Martian uh, alien invasion movie. Uh, and it's it's fun to watch, especially if you just watch, uh, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which I guess had a higher budget in the sense that it had name actors and, and has a greater sense, you know, they filmed on location in Washington and they, you know, they had, it has this greater kind of presence and stateliness about it. And then you get Earth versus the Flying Saucer where it's really just about watching these stop motion flying saucers fly into monuments, which of course carries over to so many uh, later day films, but it, it, it is a lot of fun. It does have a lot of that dated fifties kind of like, you know, the scientist is basically a, a church of the subgenius Bob Dobbs type with his pipe and, you know, looks kind of like John Hamm from Mad Men. Um, so, which is why I think like John Hamm winding up in the remake of day of the year stood still is kind of funny. Cause so many of these guys from the fifties kind of look like them, you know, the, right. Sure. The square jaw and the plastic hair. Um, and you know, so a lot of the nostalgia about that film has to do with those, those great flying saucer attack scenes and the good use of, of models and then double exposure and mats and things. It was really skillfully done. And I think that stuff stands up well today, but it does feel a bit campy, um, as do a lot of the lesser films that of the genre that, uh, the Zed, Z-grade B-movie studio type uh, type films. Um, but really, if, if you want to have fun, you know, it's widely available in many formats. I, I recommend maybe checking out Earth vs. the Flying Saucer and then going to Mars Attacks after that. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. So it's funny, John Carpenter's The Thing has become kind of a, uh, a classic, in, even though it was very poorly received when it arrived in, in 1982. And we spoke about The Thing, I believe, when we talked about our remakes. Yes. Uh, and it is, it is truly one of the great alien invasion movies. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's also a horror and it's a lot of things. But, uh, but I wanted to mention one of Carpenter's films from later in the 80s, and that's They Live from 1988. It, it seemed to me that he, as his films went through the 80s, they almost got progressively lower in budget, which surprises me because I think a lot of those movies were well-received, uh, The Thing, uh, you know, not included. Uh, but, um, you know, The Thing at least had the deep freeze location, which felt very uh, kind of authentic, whereas They Live just 
everything about it feels kind of cheesy and slapped together. Uh, the story, for those who don't know, uh, it's it's a Los Angeles alien invasion movie. Rowdy Roddy Piper, who at that point was best known and probably still best known for his days as a wrestler. He's a drifter who arrives in Los Angeles. He finds his way, uh, he gets his his hands on a pair of special sunglasses, and when he looks through them, he discovers that all the world's problems, especially greed, are caused by aliens who've taken control of our media and our corporations. The film is a a very tongue-in-cheek sort of jab at 80s materialism and, uh, and, you know, the the decade or the material decade. And uh, and it's very funny in its own sort of cheesy sort of way, including a, like, 10-minute fight in the middle of the film. (laughs) Sort of the, the centerpiece of the film is a fight between... Uh, Piper and Keith David in an alleyway that goes on and on and on for no good reason, basically because because Piper is trying to convince uh, David to wear the glasses so Put he can the see, glasses on so he can see what's yes. going on. Uh, but uh, it is, and the aliens are, have kind of a skull skeleton face, and they're they're creepy, but in a in a in a way that is 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 deeply tongue in cheek. I, I I really like They Live and uh and Obey. I, I, I yeah, consume this is your God. Obey. These it's like all the billboards <laughs> have have these these the subliminal is made made um you know overt in in once you put the sunglasses on. It, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, they live is is a good time. I, I think it's also had its own it has its, its cult following that film yeah it didn't i i I think it got less of distribution and i i know it did play here briefly uh when it came out and then was kind of gone kind of the same way the thing came out like i saw the thing at a movie theater in wolfville uh and i wasn't old enough to get in but they this kind of looked the other way (laughs) i guess a a ticket's a ticket so um and they live I i didn't get a chance to see it in theaters actually it was gone here and gone uh you know within a matter of week maybe two at most right um and it kind of found its audience on video, sure, I think. Um, sure, yeah, that makes total sense. I, I had a friend who was a huge fan of the film. And at Halloween, he carved uh, They Live Pumpkins. <laughs> you know, they just had pumpkins with Obey and Consume carved nice. into them. Nice, um, You know, and I, I returned. You know, that, that film just seems to get more prescient every day, it seems. Uh, usually around election time. Yeah, the, the funny film, that. People start writing essays about it and how forward-thinking it was. And it, it seems like with each election, it gets even more and more on target. Um, so I think, I think Carpenter really hit a nerve there with that film. And yeah, it's interesting how those kind of like after, uh, after the thing and, and, and big trouble in little China, um, you know, it was kind of a law of diminishing returns with Carpenter. You know, I think in the mouth of madness is the last one I can remember in the yeah. theater. Oh, he did a remake of uh, village of the damned with Christopher okay. Reeve that I've never seen. Cause I thought, why bother? Yeah. Um, the original is so great. But uh, one of these days I'll probably get around to it. But um, and Prince of Darkness, I think, was another one that was really uh, has gotten a better following decades later than right. it did at the time. But uh, yeah, they they live. Uh, you know, it was it's such a product of the of the Reagan era, I guess. Uh, definitely. Um, and uh, you know, it feels like we're even in more Reagan esque times. <laughs> you know, we went from having a movie star as a president. Or not we, because we're Canadians, but <laughs> America, the United States, uh, went from having a movie star president to a reality TV star president, which is just shows you where culture is heading, I guess. So, and somehow this film just taps into that so well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I also watched 
something, another film from the 80s. Uh, I went and revisited it. First time I'd seen it probably since the early 90s. It's called Communion. Uh, it's from 1989. It's screenplays by Whitley Stryber adapting his own book. Uh, Whitley Stryber is famed for being a, uh, a writer and, uh, and he's written screenplays and he's done a lot of, a lot of uh, interesting work, but he's best known for being someone who says he was abducted by aliens. This is an alien abduction movie, which is a sub subgenre, I guess. I don't I can't think of a lot of alien abduction movies, but this this is definitely one of them. I guess maybe Close Encounters would be the hot, most high profile one. Um but uh, yeah, and Stryber in, in this case uh uh Stryber is played by Christopher Walken, which helps make this movie totally wacky. Uh, <laughs> at, at the time, I remember well, the first time I watched it, I actually found a lot of it pretty creepy, but watching it again, it just sound it just it really tipped over into ridiculous. Uh he uh Stryber's basically is uh, Walken is Stryber and he lives in New York City with his wife Lindsay Krauss and their son and uh they go out to their uh, and then the the opening sequences are very sort of jovial and goofy. The film opens with with uh Walken's character burning the dinner and bringing the fire department to the door of their <laughs> New York apartment. Uh, and, you know, it's all played for laughs and everything's great. Uh, and then they go to this cottage they have somewhere out in the woods, very far away from civilization. And uh, the boy sees, sees a spider, and that's a cause for a lot of fun and merriment. <laughs> but then the, the dynamic goes kind of intense. This is all clearly a red herring setup because... Um, you know, people start to see things at night, and and uh, the 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 Strybers have uh, guests staying with them at the cottage, and they want to go home the next day because they're totally creeped out by having seen weird lights in the sky the night before. And uh, so so they they keep visiting the cottage, and they keep having strange experiences that they can't explain. And Stryber's character uh, it just kind of loses it. He he uh, he picks up a shotgun and tries to shoot his wife at one point because he thinks she is an alien and then they go through a series of of hypnosis and and psychological treatments and he starts to realize that what's happened is he was abducted and he was he was tested upon by these these creatures and confusingly there are two different kinds of aliens they're the short blue skin ones and then there are the tall skinnier ones with the kind of wedge-shaped face and the almond-shaped eyes that we have come to know as the grays as as more typical alien characters um so so yeah, and there's the requisite a- uh, anal probe, which is uh, a part of the story, uh, and and then on on top of this, there's this score which has Eric Clapton guitar licks in it uh, <laughs> that makes it feel like we're watching a Lethal Weapon movie. Um, the whole it all just becomes weirder and weirder, and in the final the final moment uh, or the final one of the final scenes. Uh, Walken returns to the cottage because he wants to commune with the aliens. He's come to peace with the fact that they're there. He wears a suit and a lot of eye makeup, and uh, and yeah, he he dances with them. And, and, and I, 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 I does he yeah. wear a fedora as well? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. my strongest image from this movie is not the alien anal probe, which I guess is where this entered into popular culture and then you know took hold in South Park. But but that fedora for some reason is the strongest image I take well, from this well, movie. The eighties uh, fashions are really distinct here. Um, yeah, so so I, I can't really, in all good conscience, recommend it. But uh, but it is it is entertaining and and interesting you know you know we're talking about these films being uh somehow um allegorical and you know Stryber 
claims that this actually happened to him. He's got a whole cottage industry. He's written a number of books about his connection and his his relationship and his his uh, uh, just this thing that's happened to it in his life, he, it, which has been ongoing. Like he has had ongoing relationships with aliens. Um, but this feels like a really analogous to child abuse, especially when Watkins' character says, this has been with me my whole life, and he envisions scenes from his childhood, but that's never really explained. It's it's other than to assume that aliens have been visiting this one guy his whole life. Uh, and he feels, he seems sort of damaged and changed by these connections, even though he somehow makes peace with it by the end of the film. Yeah, this, this film... Uh is highly revered by the alien abduction community. <laughs> you know, it's, I remember seeing it when it came out and then weirdly enough, I, I, I used to write this is a long time ago, uh, for, uh, a, like a home video theater magazine. It was kind of like a self published thing and the primarily centered on laser discs because of course this is pre DVD and they were the, the high, upper echelon way of seeing moody movies at home at the time. And the, the guy who put this all together, um, he was, uh, I think he was like Canadian, but grew up in California and, and I think had some sort of mystical UFO experience on Catalina Island or something like, like it's all, it's all a blur to me now, but, but he had a lot of reverence for, for this movie and for Stryber in general. And it was a weird thing that kept coming up in, in conversation. Uh, I don't think that he was actually abducted or anything like that, but, but he, he, he was really drawn to this story and to this movie in particular and held it in a lot more regard than I did. But I do, I do remember seeing this in the theater when it came out and, and being struck by how odd it was and, and how kind of it does. I mean, I mean, maybe it does feel very much an eight kind of an eighties film, but it also has this weird floaty kind of unconnected feel. <laughs> like it doesn't like, it, it's really the kind of film. And once you see it, you don't really forget it. Yes, it's, it's true. It's, it's an unusual film that's maybe ignores some of the conventions of, of, commercial filmmaking and maybe that's in its favor and 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 it's i think some of the scenes really feel improvised like yeah. lindsey kraus and christopher walken are just sort of making up their their dialogue as they they go forward and and some of that maybe just gives you feeling of of well you're not really sure what to expect because because it doesn't seem like the actors really know what's ha- going to happen next uh, and of course walken's association with anything he, he's he, he's got he brings such a strange energy to films anyway to put him in a movie like this and you're already kind of you're lost your moorings yeah it's it's there's nothing weirder than watching christopher walken try to play a normal guy <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just because he's he's not he had a you know weird showbiz kind of childhood grew up on the stage and uh, you know, the, the kind of reinforced his character, I guess, in his persona in real life, as it, as it were. So, so something like this is it, it's a real odd fit. But again, you know, it makes it memorable. I mean, you can't watch any film with Christopher Walken in and not leave with something <laughs> stuck in your brain about it. Um, you know, I'd, this 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 film really wants you to. Be, it's also it's, it's kind of evangelical in the way that it wants you to believe that alien abductions are happening and yeah. and uh and and maybe that's the part that turned me off a little bit that it was it's it's like if you if you don't believe what happened in this movie then you're some kind of dummy or, or something like that like it's almost it's almost religious and it's yeah it, it doesn't it, 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 it tries to address the 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 cynicism or the the uh, skepticism that uh, some people might have about about alien abduction, but it it doesn't do a great job of it. And uh, and then there's there's a scene close to the end where 
Lindsey Krauss and, and Christopher Walken are in an art gallery, and it's not really explained why they're there, but they're standing in front of paintings by, like, Jackson Pollock and and speaking directly to the camera, supposedly to each other, but really to the audience, and doing monologues about why it is that this is happening and what we can learn from the aliens. And, and uh, it's deeply peculiar. Uh, it, you know, it, it might... It might uh, it, for, for the particular people out there who enjoy the sort of midnight movie and the sort of cult classics, this, this could uh, potentially <laughs> be something they want to add to their list. Yeah, I almost feel like if, if it didn't have such a strong cast, I mean, Lindsey Krauss and Christopher Walken are two incredibly fine actors, but it's, it's you know, and they're kind of what saves it from being the alien abduction version of The the Room. I think cause it could, this film could have gone off the rails because, again, it's not, you know, it's not conventional in the way it's made or, or edited or written or anything really and and the, the fact that it actually made it into theaters i think the books have been very popular and i think that had a lot to do with how this film got such a widespread release uh and and, and you know and it just so happens there's a community of of folks who uh, believe strongly in what it says and and have kind of kept it aloft for so long so that it's 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 a one-of-a-kind film for sure. I, and I'm trying to think if he's made any other... I think I feel like there were sequels to this. Uh, I don't know if there were. Uh, or maybe I, I'm thinking of some other Stryber properties. It's, he's not a name you hear a lot of these days unless it's connected with this film. Yeah, uh, no, I know that the... I looked up the filmmaker, Philippe Mora, who then the only really notable uh, picture on his list is a documentary, Not Quite Hollywood, The Wild Untold Story of Ozploitation. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's an Australian uh, director. I, I think he made some other films... Um, of you know minor Australian titles, but I forgot that he actually went on to make that documentary, which everyone should see. It's a great uh, look at the crazy world of 70s yeah. and 80s Australian exploitation films. Um, now, speaking of Lindsay Krauss, uh, she is in another film I just wanted to mention, and especially because of the title. 20 years ago, there was a film called The Arrival uh, in 1996, written and directed by David Tuohy, who I think probably is a filmmaker both mostly known for pitch black yes i think it's tui tui is it yeah because there's okay. an australian beer called tui's and it's there you go similar in spelling uh so so he did a film called the arrival and this is a charlie sheen alien invasion movie uh again it, it has some similarities to contact but uh, not nearly as well made. This is this is a far more B movie, low budget kind of like seat of your pants kind of movie. But it's it's sheer uh, uh, gumption and and verve is what I would recommend it for. Uh, Sheen plays a guy named Zane, Zane Zeminski, kind of in full nerd mode. He's got the geeky glasses, the goatee, and the sea urchin hair. He and Richard Schiff, who people will remember from the West Wing, they work at SETI, and uh, the big dish is looking at the sky, and one night they get a signal. So they go to their boss, played by Ron Silver, so you know he's a bad guy. <laughs> and uh, and uh, meanwhile, Lindsay Krauss is a climatologist who discovers a field of poppies in the Arctic. And of course, all of this is connected, and not just because because Sheen and Krauss wear the exact same kind of sunglasses. I guess the production must have gotten a deal from a sunglass manufacturer. <laughs> um, Ray-Ban. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Arrival looks pretty... Che- the Arrival, I should say, looks pretty cheap. But I like the way that Sheen commits in his attitude. He eventually gets fired from his job because Ron Silver wants to cover everything up. And soon the bad guys are confiscating his data. Uh, and then he gets dumped. Sheen gets dumped by his girlfriend, played by Terry Polo. Now, Charlie, of course, is too smart for the bad guys. He goes down to, uh, to uh, Mexico, and he discovers that the mystery is the, the aliens basically are already here, and they have a huge, this huge compound and uh, 
a subterranean lair wherein they've got this incredible technology and it 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 just it's all very goofy but quite quite entertaining film and uh and you know and the the bottom line basically is that climate change is actually alien terraforming uh Ooh. which is a pretty heavy idea <laughs> that that remains who knows maybe some people will relate to uh in our current political climate that uh that's the only way climate change could be could be accepted as if it was considered alien terraforming i don't know i i i really enjoyed the arrival uh not quite as much as arrival but uh i think it's worth uh <laughs> worth a look for those who are interested well you know young charlie sheen has a certain flair about him i guess um you know, before he was even more corrupted. Uh, this is a film that I can't remember if I saw or not. It's really funny. I, I remember it being a hot, I, I, you know, I worked in a home theater laser disc rental store. Uh, and I remember this one being a hot title, actually. I remember a lot of people taking this one out because it was a fun, not necessarily a no brainer, but, but, um, you know, kind of a fun nonstop, uh, un, um, uncomplicated alien invasion movie. But, you know, somehow I, I I don't recall the uh, the climate uh, the climate change uh, subplot. Which I hope kinda, I'm not. I hope it's not a spoiler for anybody. It, I don't think it's going to be. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's. What, I mean, you know, every time they make one of these films, they try to put it. Or most filmmakers, I don't think there was much of a contemporary twist on Independence Last Independence Day, but um, you know, try to put a contemporary twist on it or an allegory or whatever. And uh, I find it interesting that uh, that uh, greenhouse effect. You know, literally, it's a greenhouse uh, that uh, it, that makes that even more appealing to me. That I really want to go back and find a copy of this thing. Um, you know, just just because there's a certain verve to to those films that you, you know, kind of before CGI really took hold, and and uh, you couldn't just rely on it to to fill out fill out the time with these kind of uh, special effects scenes. It's true. You, there is some CGI. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's uh, charmingly bad, I guess you could say. Um, oddly enough, uh, I was looking up a film that I vaguely recalled called Stra- uh, Strange Invaders from, uh, from the early 80s, um, where uh, basically aliens took over a town in Illinois. Somehow nobody in the 50s, nobody noticed. But then decades later, people are disappearing and people from outside of the town are asking questions. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but I remember it being fondly recalled at the time. Um, I guess it has maybe a little bit of Invasion of the Body Snatchers built into it, I suppose. Um, and Paul Lamatt, who some people might remember as the, the, the drag racer uh, who wasn't Harrison Ford in American Graffiti, teams up with Nancy Allen, who I think was probably still married to Brian De Palma at the time. And uh, they team up to find out what happened to his... Uh, his missing relatives or whatever that have vanished in this town of uh, Centerville, Illinois, the generically named Centerville. Um, it, uh, it did get a DVD release as part of MGM's Midnight Movies uh, series. So that's that's one to look into, which I think has a balance of camp and uh, seriousness and apparently some pretty some, some grisliness as well, which maybe people didn't expect that they were just going for a throwback to, to 50s alien invasion movies. But um, but that's uh, that's one that's on my want list. If, if anybody out there is, uh, comes across it, uh, it might be one to, you want to think about picking up. Well, we've got a few minutes left, uh, and certainly there's no end to these films. <laughs> you can, you know, we, we've only kind of 
touches. We didn't even really talk about Close Encounters of the of the Third Kind. I mean, that's a film that kind of speaks for itself. But yeah, uh, I think I think um, you know my 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 hope is to try to to mention a few things that are off the beaten path. Exactly, I think yeah. I think uh, Close Encounters, as great as it is, and remains a terrific film, an alien invasion movie uh, for lots of reasons. It's it is basically the beaten path. It is the the one that yeah. that still so many years later still holds up. But uh, you uh, brought up a film that I saw recently, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, that I'm quite fond of. It just just for its locale, its use of the setting, and that's a Attack the Block, uh, a British, uh, you know, ostensibly a action comedy, but it gets pretty serious uh, as it deals with the issues uh, of uh, people living in the tenement housing uh, in London. Yeah, I think that's what makes it so so interesting. It's partly that we haven't seen a story set, uh, this kind of thing, which is a fantasy adventure film set in that kind of locale, which is, yeah, low-budget, um, you know, rent-controlled homes, housing in London, and uh, and the the gang of kids led by future Star Wars Force Awakens star John Boyega, uh, who's now gone on to global fame because of, of that film. Uh, he and a bunch of other kids in this this housing project are on the front line of an alien invasion, and they're the only ones who know about it. So, so there is a little bit of that Amblin, sort of Goonies, sort of uh, 80s quality to it as well. The fact that there are these young people people who are the ones that know know what's happening before anyone else does. Um, uh, now, I, I did find, and I lived in the UK for a while, and I found their slang almost indecipherable. <laughs> there are times when I really had to struggle to understand what was being said, but I did find it totally fresh. And on top of that, you know, we're at the point now where CGI can create almost anything, but too often they go back to the same kind of tropes that we've seen in alien movies before, where we're starting to, you know, the tentacled aliens and stuff. Here we are s- seeing aliens that, I haven't seen before. Like the the actual creature designs are really original, and I really like that about it. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, Attack the Block came out in 2011, and it was I guess a year or so after J.J. Abrams had released Super 8, or maybe it was the same year. Um, and Super 8 was so disappointing. I felt like all the things that I, you know, all the ways that Super 8 tried to be like a Spielberg film. Uh, and failed, I felt like Attack the Block succeeded and with at a much lower budget, but just because of its sheer, its scrappiness and yeah. its imagination. And it's, yeah, it's really great. And uh, Nick Frost from uh, Shaun of the Dead and uh, other uh, uh, Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright films shows up in a nice turn. <laughs> and, and and the kids are really in danger. Like, it feels like there's a real threat, you know, between the aliens and the gangsters, the, 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 the you know, the drug dealers and so on that are after them. Um you know, there's there's some real peril there, um, and yeah, the the fact that the monsters that you know the alien monsters look pretty cool and they don't overdo it. Like they, you know, the, often it's just a suggestion of you know that there's a bit of a Val Luton esque. I mean, you do get to see them full on at, at a couple points, but you know, you, often it's just the, their glowing eyes and that kind of thing. And I I like that aspect of it as well. Yeah, me too. Uh, and and Joe Cornish is now a name that we hear a lot of. He's the guy who directed Attack the Block and, uh, and clearly a very very talented uh, filmmaker. That was his first his first go at the swing and uh, and he did a great job um now before we go i just want to give a quick nod to those you know back go back to the midnight uh genre horror fans who who might want to see something that is is a is a very gory over the top uh alien invasion movie and that's slither from 2006 it was written directed by james gunn who of course again has gone on to bigger things with guardians of the galaxy and a a great superhero satire called super um this is a deeply gory horror <laughs> comedy 
starring Nathan Fillion, Elizabeth Banks, and Michael Rooker. And it's an alien lands in a small town, and, and you know, this sort of feels a little bit like a Men in Black pastiche, uh, but it's a whole lot messier than that, and much ruder, hard R-rated film. Uh, the aliens take over bodies and make the humans very, very hungry, so there's a zombie aspect, and some of them get ex- enormous and explode, and then there's these red slugs that go into your mouth. I mean, it's all pretty awful and like <laughs> make your skin crawl. It does give you the creeps. Yeah, and there's a body murder scene which is a little bit like the thing uh, John Carpenter's the thing um, but uh, it is it is really funny and very entertaining and I uh, I would recommend slither for those of you who have the disposition to handle all that that grossness <laughs> well we survived the alien invasion this week uh, thanks for tuning in my name's Stephen Cook you can read my stuff over at localexpress.ca that's X P R E S S. And uh, Karsten, where can people find you? Uh, I am a, a writer, a film writer, and I uh, am blogger. And my blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it is available to be read at uh, halifaxbloggers.ca. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter, at LendsMeYourEars. Uh, we have a Facebook page that's pretty easy to find. And also, uh, we have an email address, uh, LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks to the folks at CKDU-FM in Halifax for the use of their facilities and the Village Sound Cast Network. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.